Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in the depths of rural Norway, sometime in the mid-20th century. It's very cold and dark enough for stars to appear, and a hard frost covers the ground. A young girl strides purposefully down the road, wrapped in a thick coat, her forehead all that is left exposed, her eyes fixed on the road ahead. A long-drawn-out crack echoes like a gunshot. It is the ice moving in the lake below. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of Year of Reading Dangerously, and today we're joined by two guests, one returning and one making their debut. Welcome back, Max Porter, and welcome, Karl Ovik, now scarred. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. Karl Ovik is a Norwegian writer whose work, including the six-volume sequence My Struggle, the novel A Time for Everything, The Seasons Quartet, and most recently in English, The Morning Star, has been published in 35 languages. He has published 22 books spanning fiction, non-fiction, essays, and biographical portraits of Edvard Munch and Anselm Kiefer. Early next year, there will be a publication of the paperback of Karlov's collection of essays in the land of the Cyclops. He is joined by Max Porter, who was last with us back in August 2019, goodness me, it feels like a long time ago, <laughs> to talk about Ridley Walker in our live recording at the Paul Elliott Festival. Incidentally, if listeners, you, you've never heard that particular episode, it is genuinely one of our favourites, partly because of the readings by Max and by Una McCormack from the remarkable novel Ridley Walker in front of a live audience, totally captivated by what they heard. A really magical, magical moment. Well, I felt it was anyway, Max. Did you feel that? Felt really special, that one. Yeah, I have really warm memories of that time, partly because of it was at Port Elliot, wasn't it? And that's um, a thing that's of the past. Can no longer be again. So, yes, I loved it. We finished our chat about Ridley Walker and I went and got a pint of beer and jumped in the estuary. Which is... <laughs> That's how we try and finish every episode of that list. It can be hard. <laughs> but also I kept on thinking about that book. Yes, I know we all do. We we have all kept on thinking about that book ever since any of us first read it. But but it, it's a nice kind of staging post in my lifelong thinking about that book. I think we could record another episode on that book, no problem at all, and mm. say an hour's worth of totally different things as well. Different things, do you yeah, know what I mean? It's true. So rich. And before that, Max, you were you joined us for uh, episode thirty-two, where we talked about the many virtues of the horse's mouth by the Irish writer Joyce Carey. Max is the author of three novels and his fourth, Shy, will be published by Faber and Faber and Grey Wolf Press in spring 2023. His work has been translated into 30 languages. But the book we're here to discuss is a 20th century classic, The Ice Palace, or Is Slotte, by Talje Vesas, one of Norway's greatest modern writers. First published by Guldendal in 1963, it went on to win the Nordic Council Literary Prize in 1964. In 1966, it was published in Elizabeth Rockand's English translation by Peter Owen, who described it as the best novel he ever published. Max Porter agrees. He's surprised it isn't the most famous book in the world. But we'll also be discussing The Birds, or Fuglana, by Vessas, published six years earlier, and which Carlo Ve thinks is even better. Anyway, <laughs> before we start strapping on our skis and bearskins, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Well, I'm really happy to say that I've been reading uh, the new book by Bob Dylan, which is called The Philosophy of Modern Song. As you know, Bob Dylan is an author who's published several books. He published Tarantula in the early 1970s. That's his novel. And he published Writings and Drawings, which is a collection of his art, uh, his essays and his lyrics. And he published Chronicles, which is one of the best music books ever written. All the right thinking people would agree with that. And ushered in a wave of music books in its wake. And now he's written this book, The Philosophy of Modern Song, in since which time, of course, the Publisher Chronicles, he has won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Talia Vesos was nominated 50 times for the Nobel Prize for Literature, or thereabouts. Bob Dylan was nominated twice, I think I'm right in saying, and won on the second occasion, controversially. <laughs> I reckon this new book came about because some enterprising editor or agent went to Bob's people and said, you know that radio programme you used to do, theme time radio hour, in which Bob would 
read links between uh, records that he'd chosen. It was a terrific show. It ran on the internet. I think there were two, maybe three seasons of it. And I think this book probably came about because somebody said to Dylan's people, you know, I reckon there's a book in that if we if we just got Bob to put down his thoughts about um, artists or music or, or, or people that he likes. And this is the equivalent. What you get is Dylan writing about all manner of uh, records, some of which you might expect, such as Detroit City by Bobby Bear or Ball of Confusion by The Temptations, obscure stuff like Doesn't Hurt Anymore by John Trudell, Dean Martin's in here, Blue Moon, it's all in the game, Tommy Edwards. Um, but I'm going to read to you uh, from uh, early in the book where Bob shares his thoughts about Pump It Up by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. <laughs> and uh, this made me laugh out loud when I was walking through the city in which I'm currently living last week, because on the audiobook version of The Philosophy of Modern Song, Dylan has recorded parts of it seemingly in an echoing corridor outside a dressing room while out on the road somewhere. And then one of a number of celebrity readers takes over from Bob. So you start by listening to Bob. Giving it the 80-year-old Bob, like that. And then pump it up. Um, the celebrity who takes over the audiobook duties from him is Helen Mirren, <laughs> which is quite a, uh, a jarring <laughs> contrast. But, but it's, this is also wonderful, this, this description of pump it up. I want you to Im imagine the first section I read. I'm just going to say Bob Dylan. I won't do the voice. Bob Dylan, and then I'm going to say goes to Helen Mirren after that, okay? Pump It Up, Elvis Costello, originally released on the album This Year's Model, Radar, 1978, written by Elvis Costello. And now here's what Bob Dylan has to say. This song speaks new speak. It's the song you sing when you've reached the boiling point. Tense and uneasy, comes with a discount, with a lot of giveaway stuff. And you're going to extend that stuff till it ruptures and splits into a million pieces. You never look back. You look forward. You've had a classical education and some on-the-job training. You've learned to look into every loathsome, nauseating face and expect nothing. You live in a world of romance and rubble. And you roam the streets at all hours of the night. You've acquired things and brought people the goods. This song is brainwashed and comes to you with a low-down, dirty look, exaggerates and amplifies itself until you can flesh it out and it suits your mood. This song has a lot of defects, but it knows how to conceal them all. Okay, so that's, that's what Dylan says about it. And now here's what Helen Mirren says about it. <laughs> Elvis is one of those guys whose fans fall somewhere between the two poles of passion and precision. There are people who tick off the boxes of his life with the same obsession of someone completing a train schedule, while others don't know anything beyond the fact that he sings a song that accompanied a particularly devastating breakup. Very seldom a cheery wedding song, but plenty of breakup songs. Knowing a singer's life story doesn't particularly help your understanding of a song. Frank Sinatra's feelings over Ava Gardner allegedly inform I'm a fool to want you, but that's just trivia. It's what a song makes you feel about your own life that's important. Elvis Costello and the Attractions were a better band than any of their contemporaries. Light years better. Elvis himself was a unique figure. Horn-rimmed glasses, quirky, pigeon-toed and intense. The only singer-guitarist in the band. You couldn't say that he didn't remind you of Buddy Holly, the Buddy stereotype, at least on the surface. Elvis had Harold Lloyd in his DNA as well. At the point of Pump It Up, he'd obviously been listening to Springsteen too much but he also had a heavy dose of subterranean homesick blues. Pump It Up is a quasi-stop-time tune with powerful rhetoric, and with all this, Elvis exuded nothing but high-level belligerence. He was belligerent in every way, even down to the look of his eyes. A typical Englishman or Irishman didn't matter how much squalor he was living in, always appeared in a suit and tie. Back then... <laughs> English people appeared in suits and ties, no matter how poor they were. With this manner of dress, every Englishman was equal. Unlike in the States, where people wore blue jeans and work boots and any type of attire, projecting conspicuous inequality. 
The Brits, if nothing else, had dignity and pride and they didn't dress like bums. Money or no money, the dress code equalised one and all in old Britain. Pump It Up is intense and as well-groomed as can be. With tender hooks and dirty looks, heaven-sent propaganda and slander that you wouldn't understand. Torture her and talk to her, bought for her, temperature was a rhyming scheme long before Biggie Smalls or Jay-Z. Submission and transmission, pressure pin and other sin just rattled through this song. It's relentless, as all his songs from this period are. Trouble is, he exhausted people. Too much in his songs for anybody to actually land on. Too many thoughts, way too wordy. Too many ideas that just bang up against themselves. Here, however, it's all compacted into one long song. Elvis is hard-edged with that belligerence that somehow he is able to streamline into his work. The songs are at top speed, and this is among his very best. In time, Elvis would prove he had a gigantic musical soul, too big for this type of aggressive music to contain. He went all over the place, and it was hard for an audience to get a fix on him. From here on, he went to play chamber music, write songs with Burt Bacharach, do country records, cover records, soul records, ballet and orchestral music. When you are writing songs with Burt Bacharach, you obviously don't give a fuck what people think. Elvis <laughs> blows through all kinds of genres like they are not even there and pump it up is what gives him a license to do all these things. Who doesn't want to run from this podcast straight to their copy of this year's model and play mm, pump it up, true. right? What it's so this book is so enjoyable uh, and as you may have noted from Elvis, uh, from Bob's thoughts on Elvis Costello, Dylan is nothing if not king of the backhanded compliment. So, so I really, I really, really enjoy this book uh, with your eyes or with your ears. It's called The Philosophy of Modern Song. It's published by Simon & Schuster and it costs £35. John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading Emergency by Daisy Hildyard. Um, it's her second novel, uh, her first, Hunters in the Snow. Uh, got lots of terrific reviews and then she wrote a non-fiction book i keep worrying away as listeners to this podcast will know keep worrying away at um at books about uh our, the the countryside the, the pastoral novel ever since i think Salman rushdie told me that it was a moribund dead form i've always felt the need to go out and try and seek out hmm. pastoral novels that aren't uh, i spoke about all am on the last episode pj harvey's remarkable verse novel set in and around a, 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 a Dorset village. Emergency is, is set in a Yorkshire village in the 1990s. The woman, the narrator, the unnamed narrator, is looking back on her childhood. And in very similar ways, it's kind of playing around in, in woods and quarries near her home, observing the, the kind of the, the difficulties of adult life, while also closely observing the, 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 the movements of nature. Um, and also, I suppose it's a, the emergency in the title is all of this lovely pastoral stuff is, is happening in a world that's, that's slowly choking to death and dying and uh, pesticides and plastics, the, the stuff of, of uh, late 20th century childhood are part of the problem. Somehow, Daisy Hildyard seems, manages in, this, in her episodic way to make a really beautiful and kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it a page page turning novel, but I read it very quickly and found it completely captivating certainly if you're a fan of daisy johnson's fen or fiona mosley's elmet or sarah hall's short stories or dare i say it max porter's lanny you're going to find this book attractive and, and rewarding anyway the kestrel is um a kestrel is hovering close to the mole and she looks at the mole. I could see him intimately now. His features were precise and miniature, acorn cup ears, thread-fine whiskers radiating in all directions, and tiny hand-shaped feet. His whole body was vibrating violently. He seemed unable to move. The kestrel had paused again, and my gaze moved up and down, drawing a direct line between them like a lift between two floors of a building. I felt a sense of love arise inside me as huge and widespread as the vole was small and specific, and it occurred to me that I could rescue him. I knew what this would mean because I'd done it before, 
When the huge black rabbit who lived in a run in our garden had a nest full of babies, my parents had told me not to touch them. I sat outside the hutch and waited for them to be revealed when their mother rolled aside tiny pink squirming things which were in the process of becoming, from day to day, delicate versions of their parents. When they were a week or so old, skin still visible through a sheen of black fur, my mother explained why I wasn't to touch them. The rabbit would eat her babies if they had a strange smell on them. I held my hands in front of my face, but they didn't smell like anything except faintly soap. Anyway, she takes, of course, mm. one of the little rabbit pups, mm -hmm. and then, of course, she returns it. The following day, I went to see the rabbits, and the mother was alone in her run. She was truly a big rabbit. I watched her for a while. She seemed calm, nibbling dandelion leaves, and I felt a sense of affinity with her because we had done it together, destroyed the babies with our colossal care. Even today, she seems to me very human in the way her principles forced her to self-destruct and in the scale of her appetite, which far exceeded what she needed to survive, those dandelion leaves. I don't mean that the rabbit was much like a person, more that principles and will, amongst most other qualities, memory, love, are not exclusively human traits by any reasonable definition. All creatures have character. Mm. Really great little book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was weird reading that in the same week that I was reading Vissas because there's definite sense of the weird allegorical relationship that we have perhaps with nature or that nature has with us. Okay, so what's the name of the book? That is Emergency by Daisy Hildyard, published by the ever-excellent Fitzgeraldo Editions. Great. Back to Torje Vessas and the Ice Palace. It was Nicky Birch, our producer, who first alerted us to the short, the short but brilliant novel in our summer reading episode back in 2020. It's the story of Sis and Un, two 11-year-old girls. Sis was popular and outgoing, and Un more reserved, an orphan, and newly arrived at the village school. They are powerfully and mysteriously drawn to each other. Shocked by the intensity of her feeling after Sis visits her at her auntie's house, and decides she will skip school the next day to visit the waterfall on the river that the other children have mentioned. The weather has been so cold it's frozen the waterfall into a huge and complex pillar of ice, alluring and terrifying in equal measure. The fallout from that decision fills the book's final 80 pages. Written in a deceptively simple language, it explores love, guilt, sexual awakening and our complex relationship with nature in a way that is profoundly original and memorable. How simple this novel is, wrote Doris Lessing. How subtle, how strong, how unlike any other. It is unique, it is unforgettable, it is extraordinary. And these are all qualities the Ice Palace shared with another novel, The Birds, which was first published in 1957. The story of Mattis, a man in his late 30s who lives with his older sister, Despite or because of his learning difficulties, he enjoys an intense relationship with the natural world and the ability to pose the deepest of philosophical questions. It's another quietly devastating story about loneliness and the difficulty we have making ourselves understood. Karl Ove has called it the best Norwegian novel ever and said it would have been counted among the great classics from the last century if it had been written in one of the major languages. And as we have Carl Ove here to develop that <laughs> thought, <laughs> let, let me ask you, we would normally ask you, when did you first encounter the work of Tarje Vesas? But in a sense, I, I suppose what I would like to know is both that and could you just put Vesas into context for English-speaking readers in terms of his importance in terms of yeah. modern Norwegian literature? Yeah... I can't say when I first heard about Vesos or learned about him at all because it's, it's like he's, uh, he's always there. He's, um, yeah, he's thought at schools and, and he's kind of the, one of the most important writers. So he's in the canon. He's everywhere, really. So I just wrote, tried to write an essay about the birds for an anthology and, and it, was, it was almost impossible 
because everyone knows everything. So there's nothing, <laughs> nothing to say about it really. But then I, I reread both uh, the Ice Palace and the Birds, and I found it that didn't really matter. It was all about presence, all about being in the book. It's all about being there, which mm. especially the Birds too is 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 about somehow. Max, when did you first become aware of the, of either Versace or the Ice Palace? specifically uh, i think i might have read the birds first i i i had a crush on on the catalog of peter owen i'd read um <laughs> silence by shusako endo which uh which i yes, can recommend the backlisted podcast episode on with sarah also, perry with yeah. sarah perry which is a great one and also the year of the hair um by art pastelina and um both had had rather a profound effect on me, as well as some books obviously by Herman Hesse and uh, Paul Bowles. And I just thought, well, this publisher is perhaps the best publisher of translated literature. You know, I can't imagine that that I would have another hit with this publisher. Hmm. And then I read The Ice Palace, and I think it's yeah, certainly one one of my very favourite books. But my experience of reading it was an almost spiritual revelation, really. But that was how I came to it. Yeah, my love of Peter Owens. But and then and then someone who worked at Peter Owen heard that I was enjoying all these books and then came and gave me all the Peter Owen books, um, which, which started <laughs> oh. a kind of great binge, uh, of, you know, some of the greatest writers of all time, I think really. Peter Owen binge. That's a, that's a thing. Yeah. That sounds like a thing. Well, I, I told John in a message that when I was reading the birds this week, yeah. I, um, opened it up and my, my, my copy of the birds is actually signed, um, by Versos. To, to oh, Peter Owen. Oh. <laughs> to Peter Owen? They've given away the file copy. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> signed, <laughs> signed July 68 with greetings for Peter Wow. That is extraordinary. So I think I should probably give it back to them. It probably belongs in their archive. Will you, though? <laughs> <laughs> you have to know, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you, you fool, Max. You fool, you damn fool. <laughs> From what I can gather, that the Ice Palace was the first of. Uh, I, I don't know whether Versace had been published in in English any of his previous. Now he wrote twenty five novels in all. As I think uh, Carlo V. He was. I mean, he was. Yeah. So he's much more prolific writer than we would. I mean, these are the two that get talked about most in the in in um, in the English language world. But what he was, kind of maniac say, would write like that many um, books, Carl? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, lived a long life. <laughs> Before I come back to you, Colover, I'd like to ask Max, you glancingly referred to a spiritual experience there of reading The Ice Palace, right, the first time? Yeah. Where is the spiritual element of the novel? Well, for me, it is in the... In, in the broader kind of versus um, universe, the relationship between human beings and the natural world, but particularly in this book, the way that that is set against a, a, a sort of devastatingly insightful portrayal of childhood unease and affection and nameless uh, emotional currents passing between different human beings, almost almost like a spiritual charge, be it erotic or political or mm. whatever it is. He does that almost better than any writer I have ever come across to the point where it, it's as if the book itself has an aura mm -hmm. beyond its subject to do with the, the, the sort of potency of its truth. I think particularly about the relationship between the children and, and, mm. and the adult and then in the natural world, it, it, it gets into your skin in, in, in the way um, closer to the condition of music or, or visual art. Um, and I think it was one of the first times I'd experienced that as a reader. At that time in my life, I was as as we all are all the time, um, searching for work that that for, for the truth, for for for, fight for work that kind of goes beyond the what I felt to be the kind of mannerisms of the social realist novel or whatever it was. It, it, it kind of cut through what I deemed to be mm. a certain artificiality at work, um, and and because perhaps of what you've said, you've mentioned as the kind of allegorical features of his work, or partly because of the sheer spaced out. Um, the extraordinary aesthetic that, that he that he achieves, uh, as well as the kind of brutal honesty of his portrayal of mm. of, of mental processes and social processes, um, it it was revelatory to me um, as 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 you know as 
Talis was when I first heard it or something. I, 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 I'm mm, sort of reaching mm. around for comparisons, but there wasn't really any when I first read it. I thought I had found a higher form. He's the sort of writer that you might apply this to a filmmaker or a musician or a chef who is clearly operating to a well-worked-out aesthetic, but you don't know what it is. <laughs> and part of the appeal as a reader is trying to puzzle it out from the infer it from the clues contained in the writing. So there's a real steady sense of this, I am telling you this because this is so important to how I see the world and how I create. And I always find that very seductive, actually. I find that that makes me want to sink into the work. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I'd never read him before we did for this. And I, I, I don't want to, you know, copy you, Max, uh, and say it was spiritual, but it was certainly incredibly stimulating to think, oh, great, I don't know what the rules of this are. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's so appealing to me. It's very interesting also you mentioned that his, his worldview and his, his way of looking at things appears in two girls that are 11 in one book and in an idiot in another so it's it's two <laughs> places in in society where normally nothing of value is going on you know it's 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 like it's beyond what's important and and there there it happens which i think is interesting in itself and and a, and a big part of his genius really mm. to go there and also that seems that strikes me also to to have something in common with the realm of the spiritual in as much as the the, the more difficult questions of uh forgiveness uh tolerance mm. taboo the, the, these are these are questions that are in the darker corners of of the dogma of of the church or the moral preachings of of the of religious leaders and that and and as you say he he just goes straight to them with a kind of unfussiness with a kind of representational clarity that is that is so rare that it strikes one as profound um and also there's no there's no trickery there's no showmanship about it it's utterly direct um it, they, they, these books strike me as incredibly honestly built there's no sort of theatrical strategies at work really beyond their mm. beyond the sort of depth of their investigation and i find that incredibly Im impactful as a reader don't you also find it i i mean i i think of how many ways that story of a new child at school could be told usually you would expect her to be bullied every point it seems to me he kind of well andy's that's a really great way of describing that you you're not sure what rules he's adhering to that you know there is a set of rules yes yeah, but you, that's the point yeah but at every point it seems to me he undercuts the kind of the lazy narrative expectation of what this oh this is a coming of age novel oh this is this is about a girls girls in school and kids arguing that the kids don't actually bully un and the way he paints that relationship between the two girls seems to me to be i mean you know it's a book you have to read and reread to get to to, to get the, the 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 full marrow of meaning i think yeah i'd like to ask Colliver a very difficult question Oh no! Which is, I'm so sorry, but I, I, I assume you haven't read the translations that we've read, so we're reading him in English. Yeah, and I wonder what what the distinguishing traits of his prose are in Norwegian. It's very simple, and very very melodic, and and very. I think the comparison to music is is very yeah. relevant. And there is an, a, a thing with Vesos is that he writes a new Norwegian. Uh, yeah. We don't have to go into that, but it's it's uh, <laughs> it's the same as uh, it's the same as Jon Fosse basically, and, mm, and it, yeah. it's unthinkable. Jon Fosse is unthinkable without Taya Vesos. Fosse's first book is like a continuation of Vesos somehow, and then he develops in his own. But the simplicity is 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 key. And the musicality as well. It's funny that the simplicity I think is there in the translations. Yeah, the musicality I I think is much harder for a translator to capture. I don't know, John, what you think. I don't speak Norwegian, but I loved I love the sound of it, and I love the kind of the, the the rhythm of it. We'll probably read a couple of extracts. I don't think you'll get the full effect of that in English because English is a, such a mongrel language. But I think the idea of 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 this being 
you know you were saying talus you know kind of it's it's polyphonic music it's not it's not harmony it's you've got two different mm. uh strains that are running at the same time the theme of un and then the theme of cis in in one uh, rather like the sort of the the theme of Mattis in the in the birds and, mm. and the, the theme of his sister they're, they're mm-hmm. kind of a, they're not harmonies they're, they're but they are polyphonic spatial three-dimensional mm. they feel like the, mm. the spaces mm. in them that are really important yeah well listen why don't we why don't we show not tell um <laughs> max could you could you read us a little bit of what mm. of from one of the english translations and then i might I might ask carlo to give us his his reaction to whether he feels it's capturing the 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 sense in the of the Norwegian original. Yeah, I had forgotten, and perhaps it, uh, I don't know how it is for you, Carl, having not read these for some time and returning to them now. But I had forgotten some of the more audacious stylistic flourishes at work in these books, particularly in the birds, with 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 what's happening in Mattis's mind. And how he formulates that as a sort of almost like a sort of prophetic, radical mm. um, visionary. You know, he has these sort of visionary, mm. you know, Hildegard of Bingen style yeah, yeah, blasts yeah. occur in his mind. And I, and I had forgotten that in the texture of these books. Anyway, this is the Ice Palace. They had finished their walk. It was black night. Auntie had gone the rounds. They came to Sissy's house first. A single lamp shone waiting for her. There was no sound. Well, here we are. And I'd like to say, began Auntie, but Sis said quickly, no, I'll see you home. Oh, no, don't bother. I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm sure you're not, but may I? Yes, of course you may. They set off once more. The sleeping house with the waiting lamp wheeled away. The road was deserted. They began to feel a little tired. I'm not cold. Not a bit, said Auntie. And Sis ventured to ask, what will you do in the place where you're going to live? She did not know where it was. It had not been mentioned. Auntie was used to seeing to everything on her own. Oh, I shall have to busy myself with something or other. I'll find something, she said. I've sold the house, too, you know. Don't worry about me for an instant, sis. No. I'm a worthless creature, said Auntie shortly afterwards when they were nearing her house, nearing the end of the evening. She began again, worthless. The people here have done everything for me during this misfortune, and now I'm going like this when I ought to take my leave properly. What do you think, sis? she asked when sis made no reply. I don't know what to say. And so I've been thinking that since you've been with me this evening, they'll get to know that I went the rounds and that I did it as a way of thanking them. There's that, too. I've counted on your telling them about it, and I'd be grateful if you would, though I know that only a worthless creature would think things out like that. And now they would have to say goodbye. They were floating, almost at one with the darkness, reflecting no light. Their footsteps could not be heard, but their breathing could, and perhaps the heart. They mingled with other almost inaudible nocturnal stirrings, like a small vibration in long wires. Afraid of the dark? No. Bright woodwind players had appeared and were walking along the sides of the road. Hmm. Brilliant. Bright woodwind players. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. But, but and this it's it has to be said, this is this is the the moment in the book you think previously, at the beginning of the book, when she's walking the streets, she is scared of the dark. She confesses she's scared of the dark, sis. And she won't look at the sides of the roads because there are there are voice she hears voices, sinister voices from the sides of the roads. And somehow now, by this point in the narrative, they've become kind of woodwind, mm. uh, melodious woodwind. It's it's that's an astonishing brilliant. T- uh, brilliant. It's a, an astonishing trick trick up the sleeve of a writer to do that. It reminded me, um, well, it it did a weird mental trick to me this time, Carlo, which is that it reminded me of Giotto, who I've been thinking about for for a project, which in turn reminded me of your book on angels, mm. your second book into English maybe your first mm. but I, I felt that there was this use as you said John of repetition and mirroring that you have this sense of her alone in the dark and you suddenly have this sense of her with a potentially infinite number of consciousnesses human and non-human around her which is um, terrifying and beautiful it's an amazing piece 
Carlo, what is this like for you to hear English speakers <laughs> discuss the the rhythms, textures, and themes of one of Norway's greatest writers? Does this overlap with with how you would feel about about it, or is it is the Venn diagram of the circle separate? No, it's uh, it's absolutely wonderful to, <laughs> to hear, and <laughs> that is actually happening. I think every post I met who actually have read him is is uh, is a fan or, or really loves it. Um, but there is something very nice about it because if you grew up in Norway, you always you you you're used to him. You know you can wear wear writers out. Uh, you know too much of them. <laughs> But to discover him, I wish I could read him for the first time again. But <laughs> but still, I do take pleasure in reading him again and again, which I actually I actually do. And did did the translation you just heard? Did it feel right? Yeah, yeah, good, yeah, great. Who is that? Who is the translator? We should give them credit where credit yeah. where it's due. Elizabeth Rockhand for that for the yeah. Ice Palace. Yeah, she's done a really good job. Carlo, you talked about how he's articulating. You know, um, outsider figures or people who were not paid attention to. Yeah. Did he see himself in those terms? Yeah, I think very much so. Right. He grew up in a farm. Uh, I think he was born 1898 or something. And he was expected to to take over the farm. And it was, was, was no, no way he couldn't do it. But still, his uh, urge to write uh, was so strong that he actually pulled out and, and became a, a, a writer, which probably was the hardest thing he could be at that time. And and then he felt bad about that throughout his life. So if you see interviews with him, he's talking about uh, feeling guilt about doing nothing, just sitting looking. You have to defend it. It's really is a problem for him. And then you see that the places he goes are where nothing is produced. You know, it's it's the it's one of the key conflicts in the bird is that he's not is not producing, is not functioning at all. So I think he somehow felt like an, like, yeah, if, probably felt like Mattis in, in The Birds somehow, I think. And he was also a very silent man, didn't speak almost at all. If you send an interview with him, it could take like two minutes before he replies and he will say yes. You know, it's like that kind of aura he has. <laughs> Let's get him on this podcast. He yeah. sounds like... <laughs> well, he got me. The, yeah. The, <laughs> there is a, a recording of him where he compares himself. He said the character he most identifies with. I say this, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm going at second hand, that he most identified with was Mattis, who is... Um, as we say, has you know would be classed as having learning difficulties, but or on the autistic spectrum now probably, but is um, as Matt says is is also has that kind of it is that sort of holy fool character I guess that he fulfills. Max, he reminds me in some ways, not others. I'm going to say in some ways, not others, but he reminds me of a writer that you, Max Porter, rec- you were the first person to recommend I read which is Haldor Laxness from Iceland. Mm. There's a kind of, um, I mean, Laxness is more sort of, is more sort of elaborate and Rococo in style. And, social, um, yeah. And social, and indeed socialistic than Bassas. But nevertheless, there is a kind of sense in the biography of sort of mm. the audacity of becoming a writer in that era yes. in a relatively small country is, is something that these two authors have in common. I think that's very true, and um, and and also the, the the Finnish writer I mentioned before, um, Pasolina. I mm. they all maybe it's a modernist preoccupation, you know, apocalyptic modernism perhaps as well. You would find mm. it perhaps in 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 poetry in from the UK at that time, but they are all. I think it's funny what Carlo was saying about the, the sense of. Um, this guilt about being a writer or so, but, but maybe it's also this sense of the world storm occurring elsewhere and you not responding adequately to it, not being mm. earning enough money or, or being strong enough or looking yeah. after the, doing your duty yes. for the Icelandic sheep farmer is in a way the same as the, 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 the yeah. 11 year old girl in the playground, this yeah. sense of the expectation of others um, and how that fractures not only yourself, but also ultimately your language and your ability to be, a voice so they have this deep like 
terror in these books are still quiet meditative things but within them is this sort of roaring concern worry yeah i mean it seems to me there's a, a delightful constant shying away from the obvious you know un would in another novel un would be more obviously bullied yeah at school or sis would have a more difficult time with her family. Because this is what I meant earlier when I said the rules, those rules don't apply here. You know, I, I, I find that scene near the beginning of the Ice Palace incredibly both meaningful and unknowable. When yeah. the two girls meet in the room. I, 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 I can't I can't account for it. You know, there's something uncanny about it. Do I resist the that was the bit I was going to, I was thinking of reading the mirror scene because you're talking about patterning, right? Eyes recur throughout the ice palace, including very memorably at the kind of the peak scene when she's, when uh, Un is inside the, the ice palace. But this is the, this is the bit when they're, they're looking at each each other simultaneously, looking at each other in the mirror, sitting and looking into a mirror. Four eyes full of gleams and radiance beneath their lashes, filling the looking glass. Questions shooting out and then hiding again. I don't know. Gleams and radiance gleaming from you to me, from me to you, and from me to you alone, into the mirror and out again and never an answer about what this is, never an explanation. Those pouting red lips of yours, no, they're mine, how alike. Hair done in the same way, and gleams and radiance. It's ourselves. We can do nothing about it. It's as if it comes from another world. The picture begins to waver, flows out to the edges, collects itself. No, it doesn't. It's a mouth smiling. A mouth from another world. No, it isn't a mouth. It isn't a smile. Nobody knows what it is. It's only eyelashes open wide above gleams and radiance. They let the mirror fall, looked at each other with flushed faces, stunned. They shone towards each other, were one with each other. It was an incredible moment. It's... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well maybe you know carlo when 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 in between you reading this before and you reading it now what what is your memory of that scene in the bedroom what do you what do you think of it as a as a scene in a novel between two characters it is the central scene it is what the the start of the book leads up to because when um Un is there at school. It's Sis is leading. She's a leader. She's she's the one who takes care of the others. She, and Un is just outside. And she refuses to go in there. And if she had gone in there, she would have been also under that in that play. And she refuses to play. And when they go, when they want to meet, she uh, she doesn't want to go to to Sis. She wanted to take her home. She has something. There is some sort of equality that has to be built up between them, but it's very ambivalent too. And it's 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 incredibly how he managed to describe those kind of yeah. that relation between them without mentioning it or without you know mm. naming it. And there is so much tension between them, and you don't know what the tension is, uh, but it is, but it is incredibly well done. And then this this merge of those two in one, and then yeah. the split up, and then then she lives with her in in the months after, and it's like it's it's, uh, and you no, know, I don't know what it is or what it where it takes me, but I, 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 it's it's just it's just um, yeah that scene. Is for me the kind of the center of the book, yeah. as as important as the ice palace in itself. Mm. The way that scene echoes into the ice palace, palace even yeah. after the last reading yeah. of the thing, yeah. 
because when I reread it this time, which would be my fourth read of the book, I, I, I thought, well, this time I'll understand <laughs> something in that scene that that that, that makes explicable what follows. I'll, I'll, I'll glean something between them. Be it maybe it's an erotic thing, maybe it's something mm. to do with the the game they play. Maybe it's maybe there's more there that I miss. And obviously, the fact that it, of it not being there is what is so precisely brilliant about his evocation of childhood games and childhood yeah yeah language. Mm. I, I, it, it makes me feel horribly lonely and excited mm. in the way I, I remember feeling as a child. Mm. Um, pre-linguistic no, there's no vocabulary for it exactly which is a hell of a trick gleams and radiance it's the it's light yeah. isn't it the, the light the light yeah. in this book is just you know the the light of the as you say like the light of the palace and then the the the, the light of the thaw when it comes and when um, someone's attention falls upon you yeah and you crave <laughs> it as a child and then you realize that it may be freighted with all sorts of terrible dangers as well <laughs> And it's like a nausea. It's a wobbly feeling in your belly. It is to to, to achieve that without actually saying anything is, is yeah. magnificent. And then afterwards, when Un disappears, they they desperately want to know what did she tell you because she yeah. told her something. What was that? What did she tell you? And that's kind of a, a demand from from the outer world. And of course, she can't. She knows it, and that's very much what Versus is about. There's no way to tell it. But you know it, and it's it's the same in the birds. It's 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 the same conflict. He knows something, but he can't tell it. And and you as a reader, you you know it. It's that conflict with the inner and the outer. And he's so incredibly good in capturing the inner without naming it or without anything. It's just yes. flow yes. floating around there. But you you somehow get it. But I can't tell you what mm. she meant to to say either. I mean, it's ironic that the character that of of the in the two books that spends most time thinking, in in some ways, and and trying to have theories is is Mattis, who is, you know, the 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 one who is supposedly, um, uh, whose whose brain is not functioning normally. I mean, I love his "Why are things the way they are?" is his big that insight is still. <laughs> That is the basis of all philosophy, uh, all theorizing about the universe and everything. Amazing. I've never read a, a writer who is as less corny than Versus. And everything feels there's a rightness to it. Even when you're groping for the understanding of it, as you are in that scene with them sitting on the bed, you, it's, 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 it's so subtle. Carlo, help us. Um, there's a contextual thing I'd like to know. You're, you, you, uh, obviously, we said earlier in the episode, you rate the birds very highly. Mm. We don't get to read all of his works in English because they no. haven't all been translated into English, right? Is he one of those writers with one or two great books and then a following train of, of reasonably good books? Or is he, in fact, incredibly consistent? And, <laughs> there, are and there are many more delights to be that discovered. we have yet to yeah. discover. There are many more delights, but he started out as a... As a kind of very traditional, very realistic uh, writer yeah. with a kind of a romantic touch, but it's it's uh, it's very different. And then he very gradually developed from there. And then he he was uh, he was a lot in Europe. He he loved absurd theater and 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 kind of was very much influenced by modernism. Uh, mm. And wrote mm. uh, wrote and Kafka, of course. Mm. It's also very important to him, and wrote uh, start his novel started to be more allegorically, uh, but in the same kind of setting. And then it's the birds, and then it's the ice palace, which is highlights. But but all of those books, his later period, are somehow in one way or another great, but very different. Uh, could be much more political, or or much more oriented to to the world war, or mm. and and in these two books, and and in his. Poetry kind of finds this balance between his 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 first period and, and modernism and blends it into his own. Almost it's hard to see. I find it hard to read other influences in his writing. He's very much his own writer, mm. I think. And he found that in those two books, I think. But also, yeah, some others as well. But these are his masterpieces. But it's great pleasure to read his early work too. It's good, but it's not yeah. it's not that level, I think. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. There's, can I ask a sort of personal 
writer writer to writer question do you do you warm to him as a person as someone as a norwegian writer who has had in huge international acclaim do you do you do you sympathize with him is there is there a slightly <laughs> you know in the kind of vertical axis sometimes there is warmth sometimes there is chilliness is there a warmth between you as 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 writers in your mind between me and uh, and him mm. if there is a warmth for me towards him and the kind of right yeah. the kind of person he was the way he dealt with success the way he the way he stayed to himself etc yeah very much so he managed to protect his writing mm. and he was uh, he was um you know in in his late life people came in the 60s the generation of writers in the 60s that would be like beat poets or they they admired him started to admire him and kind of rediscovered him almost and they came and he I guess you would say chilled out or he was <laughs> he was chilled out yeah okay. he was yeah <laughs> andy should we play that clip of his daughter talking about him about writing yeah, and, and it's it's quite short and it would be lovely to hear a, a bit of norwegian Vad ska jag nog bäst alla bäst för att någon annan var uppe och sa att han. Och det är ju så sånt minne som jag har från It was especially in the morning that he wrote. He was an early bird. He worked best before anyone else had got up in the morning. And that's one of the memories I have from many mornings because me and my brother's bedroom lay on the inside of his writing room. So sometimes when I woke up very early, I could hear the hum of the oven in his room. When it was very cold, the oven made a humming sound and he sat and mumbled when he wrote. And that was the best sound I could wake up to. We often fell asleep to the sound of him writing on the machine with two fingers. Two fingers, tap, tap, tap. It was a trigglot. Tap, tap, tap. We got yeah. that. Bit. I got two that. Two fingers. Bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. I can imagine many children to write us who doesn't have that experience <laughs> with their fathers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get Max's children in right now. <laughs> oh, God. The sounds of him cussing. Tap, scratch, scratch, scratch in the window. lighter. Yeah. There's oh, a kind yeah. of there's a sense I have about him, a slightly Beckett sense about him. You know that kind of very private, very um, yeah, but very precise about his work. You know, knows what he wants to do, but no, no, none of the kind of none of the sort of ego or the or the flouncing. Just yeah, that's yeah, I think that's true. The ego yeah. thing is is uh, yeah, I think that's true. About and it's him. there in the writing too as well. He's he's not a, he's the opposite of a show off. Exactly. I think also there is there is, maybe Beckett is a lovely comparison as well because there is uh, the work is dealt with the most utmost seriousness, mm. but there is always a twinkle, and it's the twinkle that I think is is so humane in this work that 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 little bit of humour or, or or wit, um, even even when terrible things happen. I mean, at the end of the birds, it's done with tremendous lightness of touch funny fussy little details that warm it to us mm. yeah it's not so much taking yourself seriously it's, it's taking the work so, so seriously that almost in a sort of sacred <laughs> sphere that you are still allowed to make jokes in the pulpit you know um, mm -hmm. and we're gonna have to wrap up in a minute but yeah. I, i'm very keen carlo there that we hear some of versace's yeah. prose in in the Norwegian, so we can hear the musicality of it. No pressure, no pressure. But we, no. <laughs> we, we would love to. We would love to hear that, please. From either book, yeah. Yeah. So, how much do you want me to read? <laughs> I can read from the opening of of just a tiny bit of the opening of the Ice Palace, maybe. Yeah, that would be wonderful. The first couple of paragraphs of the Ice Palace that would be wonderful. A ung hvit panna som borer sig fram genom mörkret. En elvårs jente. Sis. I grunden var det bara eftermiddag, men allt mörkt. Harfrosen senhöst. Stjärna, men ingen måne. Och ingen snö till att lägga lysskema, så mörkret var tätt, trass i stjärnorna. På sidorna var det dödsstill skog, med allt som måtte leva och frysa där inne i denna stund. Sist hade många tanker där och gick, 
inballa för frosten. Hon skulle bort till den halvt ukända jenta Unn för första gången. Till något inte visste, de förvart att det spännande. Och få samman, ett högt brak mitt i dessa tankarna, denna väntningar. Ett långt prästarna liksom, bortover och bortover, medan det dovna av. Det var frisen på det stora vattnet här nedanför. Och det var ingen fare, var i staden glädjelägg. Raket fortalade att isen vart ända ett grann starkare. Det dunde som börseskåt och sprang lange knivsmalle revner från överflata och djupt ned igenom. Likväl vart isen starkare och starkare till kvar morgon. Då hade vore en uvanlig lång och har barfrosthöst. Kneistrande kulle. Men kullen var inte sist något rädd. Det var inte det och stock för brak i mörkret. Men så sätter foten stött i vägen åt. God, that was bloody wow. wonderful. You should see, I, I, listeners, you can't see this, but the smiles on the faces of me, Max Porter and John Mitchison while Carl Ovo was reading that. Thank you so much. That was just, it's wonderful. We get to hear the rhythms of it's it. beautiful. And the feel of it. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. So I'm afraid, sadly, that's where we must leave Unna and Sis and Mattis and Heger behind. Huge thanks to Max and Carlovo for the invitation to explore the strange and beautiful world of Versace's fiction. To Luke for making us all sound like we were on the same winter walk and to Unbound for the double mittens. You can download all 174 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. What do you get for your money? Well, all patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and advertising free. And for even less than Mattis's pay for thinning out two rows of turnips, well, those... Who subscribe to the Lock Listen Eleven get two extra podcasts every month. It's called Lock Listed. Think of it as our very own ice palace, where we three wrap up warm and slip from icy room to icy room, enticing one another ever deeper into the mystery, with stories taken from the books, films, and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. Uh, lock listers also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. Uh, this week's new patrons include Elizabeth Grelton. Alison Rowe and Sarah Imholt. Thank you. Uh, yes, thanks so much. Thank you all for your generosity and to all our patrons. Huge thanks for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. Thank you so much to our guests, yeah. Carlo Vignasgaard and Max Porter. Let me come to you, Max, first. With the now, uh, we've this is a new tradition we've instituted since the last time you were on this podcast. Is there anything you feel we haven't covered, or anything you would like to say, or anything you would like to tell the listeners? about the work of Taye versus Well, we didn't really talk about what happened in the book, and I'm delighted um, because I think it's something that people must discover for themselves. But as an English reader, I have in my life benefited so utterly, so, so, to so totally and transformatively from the work of translators and publishers that take risks mm. on translated fiction. So... In America, these books are published by Archipelago Books. In this country, yeah. they're published by Peter Owen and now by by Penguin Classics, as you say, and and and, and translated. You know, we've mainly been reading the translations of Elizabeth Rockan, uh, which strike me as pitch perfect, uh, um, and just immense gratitude. And these books have were smuggled to me, you know, by like secrets in the bookshop, and I would encourage people to do the same. That they're, they're they're not noisy, spectacular, attention-grabbing books. They're, they're books that live in you and grow and deserve to be reread. So I would just encourage people to go out and support these independent presses and these translators that do this work. It's a miracle. A miracle. How perfect. Mm. Yes. How true. Thank you. Uh, Carlova, is there anything you would like to share with the English-speaking world about <laughs> the work? of uh, Taye Versos that we haven't been able to cover today that you feel we should know about his work? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, when you read those books or when I read those books, it's like I'm completely filled up. I'm, I'm, they are so rich and there's so much going on. And when I want to talk about it, I can't say anything. It's like it's, it's all <laughs> in the reading experience. And, and that's also 
kind of what these books are about. You know, it's about the inner world and yeah. and, and being not able to communicate it. And he's he's the one I think that is kind of yeah capturing that in yeah in in, in a, such an amazing way. I, I really yeah I really love his work. And I yeah yeah. yeah. But I can't say anything about it, unfortunately. <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't have come to the show. But, no, but I, I think you've done. I, you know what? I think you've said. Admittedly, this is uh, yes, the love of a book that cannot be articulated. <laughs> That's, That's we why do. we're here, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I'm. I guarantee you, people will go from here and and want to read these books. Yeah, I, I found this a really um, both the experience of reading the books and listening to you both talk about them has been revelatory to me. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Absolutely. Um, John, anything you would like to add to that encomium? Yeah, I mean, I'm minded of our, of our guest and friend, David Keenan, who has that phrase, holy books. These, these two books seem to me to be mm. in as much as I can understand the concept of what is holy, that they've, that they've definitely entered the pantheon for me. These are books I'll, I'll be reading and learning from for the rest of my life. So thank you both for the opportunity to, to, to do that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, okay, Carlo. thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Carlo. Thanks, Joe Mitchison. Thanks, Producer Luke. Thanks, Nikki Birch. Thanks, very much. Uh, thanks, guys. See you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Guys, that was absolutely, that was brilliant.